0: With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released
1: on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation.
0: Go to prettylitter.com and use
2: code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
0: We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast is recorded. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and to Aboriginal elders emerging. A belated congratulations to Logie winner Ron Iddles, Ron won a Silver Logie for Most Outstanding Factual or Documentary Program for his Foxtel series, The Good Cop, our patrons received a celebratory exclusive episode of Australian True Crime this week, which was a live recording of Ron talking about his career as part of our recent season at Chapel Off Chapel in Melbourne. So I hope you all enjoy that. And our newsletter recipients also received a special gift this week. It's a copy of the Ticket Holders program from CrimeCon 2019, which was recently held in New Orleans. It's really more of a magazine, though, with lots of very interesting articles and profiles. There's a long interview with Sky Borgman, the director of the Netflix documentary Abducted in Plain Sight. Remember that? So weird, so creepy. And there's also a conversation between Laura Richards, the Scotland Yard profiler, I love her so much, and Deborah and Tara Newell, the real-life mother and daughter from Dirty John. So Laura Richards interviews Deborah and Tara. It's really good. This is a great magazine. And they've very kindly given us permission to share it with you as part of our newsletter. You can sign up for the newsletter and find the Patreon link at our website, australiantruecrimepodcast.com and at our Australian True Crime Facebook page. Thank you to our new patrons, Dave Peters, Penny Palmer, Cece... Brooke O'Connor, Jane, Danielle Burton, Louise Gale, Barton Slattery. That is a good name. You, there should be crime books written about you as the policeman, the detective, not the criminal. Or both. Oh, oh, both. You can be both. That's a good book. Kate Cockshorn. Yes. Jacinta. Shanna Live, Shannon Lambden. Hey, Solo. That's wonderful. A solo, Laura Fraser, Diane Nolan, and this week's favourite name, Erin Punton Morrison. Oh, love that. Okay, on with the show. The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children.
3: And then when the serving policeman got angry with Adele... The serving policeman, it is said, it is alleged, perhaps shook her or put the arm around and did what coppers used to do in those wicked old days, and that was to put pressure on the carotid artery and then faint. And it is said by some people very quietly that perhaps that happened and perhaps Parola Dell never came out of, the, um, out of her unconscious state. And this would present the senior policeman with quite an embarrassing problem.
0: This is, without exaggeration, one of the most gripping stories I've ever been told in my life. And it shouldn't come as any surprise because the storyteller is arguably Australia's greatest true crime storyteller. It's Andrew Rule. Emily and I have made no secret of our fandom of Andrew Rule's work from his newspaper columns, his books, to now his podcast, Life and Crimes. We finally took the plunge into live events recently thanks to the encouragement and the enthusiasm of the great people at Chapel Off Chapel in Melbourne. And Andrew was our very first guest. Andrew Rule is so ubiquitous, so authoritative and such a charming and funny raconteur. It's easy to forget that he's naturally irritated some very scary people over the years. You have to be very brave to do what Andrew Rule does. And today, he tells us about one of the most frightening episodes of his career. If you're very lucky, like I was on the night, this will be the first time you've ever heard of the old Tanner family farm in Doon, Because if that's the case, you'll be as shocked by the many twists and turns in this story as I was. And he is here tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, please make him very welcome, Andrew Rule. And, of course, what about my beautiful partner, Emily Webb? Oh, this is exciting. We've got Madonna mics. We're very serious about this. Both very big fans and very excited to kick off our first ever live show with you, sir. Tell us about the case that you're going to talk to us about tonight.
3: I think the Tanner case. Okay. The Tanner case is one of those that um, uh, I broke back in the 90s and it remains one of the better stories I've done in my career and possibly the one that caused the most angst because we always get that question later in the night. Do you feel frightened about any of the? people you've dealt with or the cases you've done and this is the one that is a little bit interesting in that respect
4: I remember reading that story in the Sunday Age
3: you do when Ooh. it
4: came out I remember mm. the, there was the photo of Jennifer, a beautiful beautiful young mum in the paper that famous portrait shot it was,
3: shot. It was shot. yeah
4: and I just remember like absolutely lapping that
3: story up it was a very interesting story, it was tragic uh, she'd been Jennifer was a young mother with a 21-month-old son. She, in 1984, November, Wednesday night, in uh, Bonny Doon, which is where it's serene, as you know. um, The serenity was shattered that night, good and properly, because uh, she was home with her little boy. And her husband, Laurie, local farmer, they lived on the farm, the old Tanner family farm, which is relevant. And he was a bit of a shearer, a bit of a truck driver, a bit of a half a no-hoper in some respects, but okay, Local guy. Um, He said, I'm going into town to pick up some groceries or whatever, and she said, oh, bring me back, you know, bread and milk and a surprise. And she was quite cheerful, apparently, and quite happy. And when he got home, he finds her on the couch in the living room, dead, bleeding from wounds in the head and actually from the hands. Um, there's, interestingly, a half a cup of coffee near her and some biscuits out, laid out in a plate and her little boy is in the cot in the next room and uh, naturally uh, look, there was a, a rifle between her knees and naturally he thought she'd shot herself and I actually believe that Laurie believed that she had shot herself at that moment. So
0: she's married She's married into the Tanner family? She's married
3: into the Tanner family. Her name was Jennifer Blake.
0: And she's living on the Tanner farm that his father at, has established? At
3: Bonny Doon, at yeah, Bonny the old Tanny, Tanner farm that's been around, probably in the family for a century.
0: Wow. More How long many long. people are living on the farm? How many Tanners are living there?
3: Well, only the, that couple, but it had been where the Tanner boys grew up. So that was Laurie and... His three brothers, the youngest of whom was Dennis, one N. <laughs> I shall make a note we, we of that. We like that in my business. <laughs> Reporters and um, detectives, we like to be accurate. Yeah, so okay. Dennis, with one N, um, was the youngest, but possibly the most dominant brother, I feel. You've seen this happen in families? The baby. The baby. Yes, I have. Yes. yes. Yeah, so you are you the should...
0: baby? No, why do you say that? (laughs) No, I'm the eldest, I'm the opposite. Yes.
3: Right, well, so am I. And in this case, we're barracking for the eldest, but he wasn't as strong a personality as his brother, Dennis. And uh, the death of Jennifer was quickly disposed of um, by those who were around the local police at Mansfield as a... Suicide. Now, this was intriguing because the two police who were first called there—they were just old local local coppers who were good at pulling up, you know, cars that were driving up to the snowfields. They weren't investigators, but they go in there and they see this young woman with the rifle, and they think, "Oh, suicide. This is awful." Little boy over in a cot—that's horrible—and they pick up the bolt-action 22 rifle, and they open it, and there's a spent shell in the breach, as you'd expect because she's got a bullet hole. And then one of the police finds an empty shell on the floor and he goes, ooh, two spent shells. Why would that be? And then he looks, you know, he looks a bit closer and he realises there's a bit of blood on her hands and one thing leads to another. But uh, the key facts are these. The crime scene um, boss at Mansfield Police Station was a former homicide detective who was an expert at crime scenes. And because he was up in the country now at Mansfield, he was a sergeant, he was experienced, and he was supposed to go to crime scenes, put up the tape, take the photographs, do all that good, you know, forensic stuff. And he wasn't at work on night shift as he was supposed to be. He was supposed to be on night shift. He had signed in and written in the book or whatever you do at 7pm, but then he'd gone missing he was working a phantom shift. As I say, He, in fact, he'd gone visiting someone uh, up towards Mount Buller. But this is where the plot thickens, ladies and gentlemen. And um, this is the spooky bit that you couldn't make up. And this guy is missing in action. So when uh, he turns up, you know, tired and emotional next day, they're going, where the hell were you, skipper? Because we needed you out at this, what looks like a crime scene. And suddenly, he developed a great interest in promoting Jennifer Tanner's death as a suicide, mm-hmm. because that would save his ass. I think mm-hmm. this is my opinion. This might be the bit you cut out. No, that's
0: fine. Yeah, yeah.
3: Um, and that was uh, one of the reasons, one of the lucky breaks that I think her killer had, was that particular thing. Now. It, there's some very intriguing things here. One is Jenny's parents, who never believed that she killed herself, were not told for one year that she had two wounds in her forehead and defence wounds in her, the webbing of her hands, as if she'd put her hands in front of the rifle barrel. Um, why would they not be told? I don't know. That intrigues me. Um, it was a very well-held secret in the police force and at Mansfield Police Station. And this didn't sit comfortably with this poor old baggy-ass copper Bill Kerr, who was the guy that had found the spent shells at the scene. Now this guy, he's he's a good bloke, he's honest, and when I say a baggy-ass country copper, I mean it in a a friendly way because he's (laughs) a good guy. I'd say that about myself. Uh, um, And I greatly admire Bill Kerr because he despite being at the bottom of the pecking order in a very tough business, tough profession, where you have a lot of dominating superior officers, he actually, I think, made sure the parents got to know the truth. Um, he kept... He took interview... He, sorry, he taped phone calls that he received from the local pathologist, the mm-hmm. pathologist at Shepparton Hospital, a man who sadly had some form of cancer, and later died, Mm. this man rang up the police station at Mansfield two or three or four days after Jennifer's death and said, do you realise... Are you sure that this is a suicide? And the sergeant that should have been there and wasn't, he said, oh, yeah, yeah, we're pretty sure. It it looks like one, doesn't it? And the pathologist says, well, funny you should ask that because it doesn't. She's got two bullets in her brain and she's got these wounds in her hand. I find it hard to believe that that would be... Consistent with suicide, it's more likely homicide. But then Phipps talks him down and says, Now look, doctor, and stands over him and sort of encourages him to switch his thought processes around and says, We're sure it's suicide. Everything indicates it's suicide because we know that it's suicide because she was depressed, which is taking a liberty with the truth, ladies and gentlemen, because there's nothing to indicate she was depressed at all. And he bullied, basically bullied and pushed and shoved and connived this poor pathologist into agreeing reluctantly that it might be suicide. And that was used uh, dishonestly, in my belief, to at a later inquest the following year to promote the idea that it was a suicide.
0: That she shot herself that once? That she shot
3: herself. And Oh, well, no, no. Survived? That she shot, yeah, survived. Yeah, shot herself and then, you know... Uh, Oh, shit, I've got a bullet in my brain, but it hasn't quite killed me. She, a bolt action rifle, for those who don't know, it's like a manual car. You have to lift the bolt and pull the action back and then you push it forward and down. Now, that's four separate motions. Then she has to reverse, under the the suicide scenario, she has to reverse the rifle. Which is a full-length, good rifle, yeah, and somehow trigger it with her toe a second time, a second, and hold it in such a way that it shoots through the webbing of her hands. This strikes me as highly unlikely, yeah.
4: and it's, it's very, very unlikely. unlikely. Suicide by gunshot for women is, is not a not a thing. A thing. Um, Did they think about that?
3: They well, they didn't want to think about that mm-hmm. because this is because a, it's very rare. When isn't I wrote it? the story all those years later, which is which we can get into in a minute. I went and asked experts and experts said, yeah, in Texas, where nearly everybody shoots and where mummy and daddy go down to the rifle range and shoot, um, women are as, almost as inclined to shoot themselves as men are for, to suicide. But basically people who don't use guns, particularly women, tend not to use them to suicide. They tend to use pills or whatever, some other means and women per se are less inclined to do something that is going to, you know, wreck their looks. It's not as usual. So that's a statistical fact. Mm. Jennifer, yes, she lived on a farm, but she was a town girl originally. She had been shown how to use the rifle by her husband but had never sort of been shooting or anything. She did know how to use it. So it's conceivable that she could kill herself with a rifle, but highly unlikely. And there was no suggestion, really. And I know this from the family doctor, who was later my doctor. Can you believe that? Mm. The family doctor from Banella later moved to Melbourne, and he, he was my doctor, and we used to talk about this. And he was a very <laughs> frank doctor, unlike most. And he said to me, it stunk to high heaven. There was nothing... He said she had a lot, of, a lot going on with the Tanner brothers, because they're no good, but um, there was nothing to... Suggest that she was suicidal.
0: That's just how the doctor got you to pay for half an hour instead of 15 yeah. minutes. That's
3: right. <laughs> His name was Dr Patience.
0: Oh. That's true. Is the husband going along, Laurie? Is Laurie always just going, oh, okay, if you reckon? Or no. is he at any point going, what?
3: He's, that's a very interesting question. She
0: was fine yeah. when I went out for milk. Yeah. Like, what is Laurie saying?
3: I, I believe that Laurie was truly shocked and surprised. And, I, and even though there has been a sneaky undercurrent of, of uh, suggestions in recent years to point the finger at Laurie over this and to say that perhaps others covered up for Laurie, I doubt it, personally. And I'm not saying Laurie's a great bloke or hasn't got his f- full suite of vices and problems. He might have, like most of us. But I don't believe he killed his wife. I think he was very shocked. And I say that because the night before we published the story in the paper I then worked for, the Sunday paper I then worked for, which shall remain nameless, because I no longer work for it. Um, it's no longer the paper it was. It's dead
0: to us, yeah, sure. It's dead to us. Yep. You
3: know, Laurie was um, very shocked when I rang him and said, tomorrow we're going to run this story saying this, this and this. He uh, stumbled, he stuttered. He was saying, What are you telling me? Can you say that again? I'm at a cattle sale. Can I just walk around the corner out of the wind? And he was totally shocked and distressed, as opposed to sullen and silent. There's a difference. And he was stuttering like a child. He was almost in tears, I would think. And I explained it. I said, Laurie, do me a favour. I said, This is now 12 years later. Your wife was found shot at your house, and she's got two bullet holes in her head. And and he goes, what? I said, she's got two bullet holes in her head, in her brain, and she's got wounds in her hands. He said, what? I said, I explained it. And he said, I didn't know that. Now, you know what? I don't think he did. I think Laurie was in shock at the time. I think he was herded away from all but his own appearance at the first very small quiet inquest held in a church hall in Mansfield in uh, 1986. I don't think the details of the case were ever reported by anybody, much, and it was all kept under wraps so much that poor silly Laurie didn't know until I rang him 12 years later the full details of his wife's death. Either that or he is a far better actor than I believe he is. How did that feel for you? Because that I was stunned. To me, it would be quite shocking
4: and sickening almost.
3: I was stunned and then I rang his brother, Dennis. With one N. (laughs) One N. And Dennis, in contrast to his brother, Mm. his big brother, was very, very sulky and very, very silent. And he heard me out for some minutes and then he said, he was obviously waiting for me to come out with the killer evidence or something. And when he thought he was safe he said yeah that's not worth a hat full of monkeys assholes that's what he said i wouldn't make that up i no, no, you would not and he um having said that he basically hung up but he was very anxious to hear everything that i had to say about what was going to be published and he was very anxious not to say anything <laughs> that could be used and uh his demeanour was entirely different from his brother's, shall we say.
0: Wow. Who raised the son who was well, in, in the house when when Jenny was murdered? Or, oh, big pardon, when Jenny when died. Jenny,
3: when Jenny died violently. She was shot to death, the coroner said. Later. Later. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he was basically raised in that first uh, dozen years by his paternal grandmother and grandparents, the Tanner's, but he had access to his mother's people, the Blakes, who I was friendly with, Les and and Kath Blake. And when I went to see the Blakes, um, when I wrote the story in 96, and the reasons we'll go into it in a minute, I spoke to them and Mrs Blake was a small, feisty, tough woman and she said, my daughter, gee, I knew it, I'm so pleased you've turned up because my daughter didn't kill herself and I'll tell you why, you know, she was planning Christmas, she'd ordered, um, she'd ordered all these presents for everybody, she'd ordered a, a new lounge suite on time payment, and so on and so on. She had all these reasons why Jennifer was planning for the future and Jennifer was quite content or content enough, etc, etc. And Jennifer's father, Les Blake, who was a large, good-looking, lovely man, a very nice man who'd worked in the timber industry all his life, He wasn't as feisty, he was a quieter chap. And he said, this is good and this is all very well, but will it mean we lose our grandson? Mm. And I said, Les, I can't tell you that. If we run the story, which we're going to, I don't know what the effect will be and I hope it doesn't cost you your contact with your grandson. And I'm afraid to say it probably did. It probably did. So there's one of the things we have to live with.
0: After the break, the many stunning twists and turns of the Tanner case begin to reveal themselves. Coming up on Australian True Crime, a long-lost woman, some thought of as completely disposable, comes back to turn things upside down. But first, Emily wants to know more about how Andrew came upon the story. And that's a story in and of itself.
4: I want to know... You know, when you just hear something and you just roll with it as a journalist. I want to know, where was well, the seed the for this? Because right. I love Went hearing back about back. that. Yes.
3: Okay. It's 1996. Back in 95, there's been a smallish story saying bones found in mineshaft at Bonny Doon uh, up at there. Now, this was not a very big story. Um, it turned out that the bones were subsequently identified as a transsexual prostitute called Adele Bailey who'd gone missing from St Kilda back in 1978, which is, you know, a dozen years, uh, many years earlier. And um, that story was intriguing and especially intriguing to us in the business, but not huge. But then one day in 96, this is less than a year after the discovery of the Bones in the shaft. I'm at work at the paper where I then worked, which was a broadsheet newspaper. Remember, they're the big ones. It was quite a good paper at the time. And I'm contacted by a f- fellow who's in the homicide squad, and I know this fellow.
0: Do we know this fellow?
3: Uh, no. And I... Uh, it's a sad story what happened to him later on because of other things, because the exposure to dead children and things, it's not, not good for you. But anyway, this fellow said to me, I want to meet you and have a chat. Where will we go? And I said, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll meet at the Age Canteen. There, the, the name came out. Because
2: there's <coughs> one thing
3: <laughs> at the Age Canteen, I can get you in there, but there will be no other coppers there. <laughs> so, so so he said, good idea. So we go there and he tells me this story. He says, look, he um, goes back a year to 1995 the mine shaft at Bonny Doon. And let's let's fill in, sketch in the story here for, for all you people. In 1995, um, two young men who know Bonny Doon really well, they didn't actually live there but they used to holiday there all the time and they knew it well and they used to go hunting rabbits and all that sort of stuff and they go up this big bridge which is right out the back of the old Tanner Farm and they know that there's a mine shaft. Now, this mine shaft's on top of a ridge and it's about as big... As that table, I'm moving very slowly, so I don't hit that mic. Um, and it's a very small hole on top of a very lonely ridge, and they have got a rope and a torch. And these two young fellows, being intrepid and being young and probably stupid, they tie a rope to a tree about as thick as my arm, and they let themselves down in the mine shaft. Now the mine shaft is actually fairly shallow and it goes down like that and then it turns and goes sideways like a footy sock, right? A footy sock with a very big foot. (laughs) And um, they get down, you know, it goes down several metres and then they hit the bottom, the heel of the sock and they look along the drive, as it's called laterally, and with a torch and they see some things and they crawl along and they go that's interesting there's a watch and there's a bangle and there's this and that and there's two old silicon things that don't know what they are <laughs> and there's a pair of very faded knickers and um Aww. different stuff and some bones and they take the biggest bone i think it might have been this one maybe and they carry the bone up to the surface with their torch and their rope and they go this looks a bit sus so they go down to the doctor it's in bonnie Doon, and they say. Look, Doc, what we found, he said, where'd you get that? In the mine shaft? They said, well, that's very interesting because that's a human bone. And he rings the wallopers and the wallopers have a look and the wallopers ring the homicide squad. And the homicide squad comes up with possibly the search and rescue guys and they land at Bonnie Doon and they go down the mine shaft, and they bring out one bone after another. They bring out the knickers, they bring out the silicon stuff, they bring out the watch, they bring out all this stuff. And... They do all the police stuff and they carefully label it. And there you have essentially a skeleton, albeit knocked about, because, you know, animals have got down there and all the rest of it. Uh, and it's been thrown down there with some force probably, so it's not good. Um, and that is the skeleton which is later identified as Adele Bailey. Now, Adele Bailey was a pit Islander by origin... Or you know, by her parents were or grandparents, and a lot of the Pitcairn people, you know, they're the, they're the ones that came off the descendants of the mutiny Bounty, on the Bounty. Yeah, you know, Fletcher Christian, etc. Mm-hmm. They had moved, as we know, from Pitcairn Island, many of them to Norfolk Island, and then many of them moved from there to New Zealand. Both Adele and her cousin came to Australia made some money in the sex industry and then went to Cairo and had sex changes and came back and worked the streets of St Kilda. And that was where poor old Adele met her end because in St Kilda, and this is where we have to join the dots and this is where you have to be careful. This is about legalities, okay? This will get you sued. Um, Adele was quite possibly arrested or picked up or or, uh, told to get in a a police car or something. And uh, Adele was probably, this is a reconstruction of likely events from people who have nodded and winked at me, right? So this is, I can't prove this, but I believe it to be true. Um, Adele was uh, coerced into some sort of sex act with a serving policeman who was a reasonably senior serving policeman. And then when the serving policeman got angry with Adele, having discovered that Adele had not been born a female, the serving policeman, it is said, it is alleged, the serving policeman was angry and perhaps shook her or put the arm around and did what coppers used to do in those wicked old days, and that was to put pressure on the carotid artery So people would do the chicken, they would um, do that one and then faint. And it is said by some people very quietly that perhaps that happened and perhaps Parola Dell never came out of of her unconscious state. And this would present the senior policeman with quite an embarrassing problem in his um, car or his cell or something, somewhere where it was embarrassing.
0: I never and, knew any of that, but I remember the photograph so clearly of Adele and for some reason I always really felt a deep sorrow for her. I don't, yes. Yeah, there's oh, something about the photo that, like that. that made me just really, as soon as you mentioned her name, I thought, I remember yeah. Adele Bailey. Tragic stuff. Yeah.
4: And Narelle's spoken about how sex workers were treated yeah. in oh St Kilda yeah. back then. Yeah. She was a young copper in the early 80s yeah. and she said how they were treated by. And plus, know, am, am I the only and, person in the room who didn't know about the chicken? I,
0: did not I just know thought I'd throw that, that in. Yeah, that was no, I loved thing. it. Thank you. I've learnt I'm, that. I'm told tonight. it was a
3: thing by a mm. detective who I met in the hotel about this and he spoke very
0: quietly mm. in case I was
3: taping him and he sort of went
0: he sort of did so we should. sign language. So he bloody should, yes. And he
3: nodded and whispered. Mm. And this is how I got that version. A story that I've heard versions of from several sources <laughs> and it makes sense Yeah. because we know that Adele from New Zealand did not, in her high heels and her tight skirt mm. and all that, get herself to Bonnie Doon, mm. walk up several kilometres into the hills where there are nothing but rabbits and kangaroos and a few old merino sheep, and then put herself down a mine shaft. Mm. That didn't happen. Uh, I think um, Adele was dead. Adele was taken there by one of the very few people in the world mm. on earth who knows where that mine shaft is, and that would include people who grew up in the area, And that mine shaft, ladies and gentlemen, as I say, is about that size. It is reasonably obscure and it is just over the back fence of the old tanner farm. It is over the back fence and it's where the tanners and other locals, when they shot, uh, you know, they had dead sheep, they would throw them down there or when they shot kangaroos and whatever, they threw them down there, all that sort of stuff. It was a place where you threw stuff. Um, As happens on farms where there's a pit, Rubbish gets thrown into it, or whatever. Now, it strikes me as highly likely that a friendly um, police person would do a favour for his uh, a boss that he was friendly with, um, and get rid of a body. That's how it strikes me.
0: A friend with one end.
3: Friend does have one end. Does. It's a silent P, as in swimming, as my grandfather say. What? <laughs> right, my grandfather used to say. He learnt that in World War I. Um,
0: so, this, so, so this conversation is happening in 96.
3: This conversation's happening in 96. We're talking about 90, the 95 yeah. discovery. Your mate's
0: saying, oi, remember uh, but, that so, thing that happened in 95? Yeah, so, uh,
3: and right. he says, so then he says, so that's all the background of Phil yeah. bring us all up to speed. So then my homicide squad mate. Says, he says, I've got a friend in the homicide squad who shares a name with me, actually, first name. And he happened to be in the crew <laughs> that was the homicide crew that mm-hmm. was sent to Bonnie Doon that day last year. Mm-hmm. And the crew could have been anybody. See, they have a sergeant and two detectives, right? Mm-hmm. And the, you have an on-call crew. Now, it so happened that on that day, the on-call crew sent to Bonnie Doon included this guy. And this guy was a young copper who was a first cousin of Jennifer Tanner. Do you like that? I
0: love that.
3: It is said by at least his aunt, Kath Blake, that she thinks he joined the police force because he was always worried about what happened to his cousin and the whole family didn't believe she was mm-hmm. really suicided and so on. Now, whether that's... True, I don't know, but it was his first cousin. Mm. He was a young detective without a lot of clout, but he did have a lot of worries about the whole thing. And when Adele Bailey's bones are brought out and identified, he goes, hmm, mm. this is interesting. We have here uh, bones brought out of a mine shaft behind the old Tanner farm. And if you look down at the farmhouse, that's where my cousin was found shot to death years before, is this a bit of a coincidence that these two violent deaths in the same district, almost on the same property, in the same era? Mm -hmm. And he came to the conclusion, perhaps, it's not something he talks about much, but I believe he came to the conclusion that it was something was rotten in the state of Denmark, or at least at Bonny Doon. Mm -hmm. And he told his friend, but he didn't know what to do about it, because he decided after several months, nearly a year, that the investigation was getting nowhere, that this link that he could see wasn't gaining traction and he didn't really know what to do about it. One day, one night, according to my friend, got his daughter's little little daughter's push bike and he rode on the footpaths in the cover of darkness, which is illegal, Michelle, (laughs) because he didn't have a helmet or a light, and he drove around to... um, in a Bayside suburb to the other detective's house. And he said, come out in the backyard because they're all paranoid. They all think there's bugs in the light. And 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 he's told him the sad story and said, look, I don't think they're trying. Someone somewhere is not trying because nothing's happening with this. And I reckon it stinks and so on and so forth. So what do we do? And my guy says, I'm going to go and talk to this journo. And that's how I came to be put in the picture. And those guys Ah. obtained for me the old, the 1985 inquest brief from the first inquest, the one in the church hall Mm -hmm. that no-one knew about.
4: Would have been quite flimsy, was it? No,
3: not well, interesting. It was flimsy in some respects, but there was some very interesting material Mm -hmm. in it. Just because Laurie didn't know it was there, didn't mean it wasn't there. And the interesting thing about that first inquest is the coroner, who was not the first coroner to be approached to be the coroner in that case. Someone else, a local magistrate, had knocked back the job on the grounds that he didn't want to sit on a case, quote, unquote, he's dead now, this bloke, uh, quote, unquote, where that copper shot his sister-in-law.
4: Oh, wow. He didn't want to sit
3: on that. So this nice Melbourne coroner magistrate did it and that man, bless his cotton socks, Uh, Listened to all this heavily slanted evidence and this one-sided stuff and then he wrote a finding which said that despite the police evidence being heavily slanted towards a finding of suicide, that he would not make that finding and he made it an open finding. Now, this was a very good thing that he did because it left it open, Uh literally left it open to be picked up and it it was never really... No one was home and hosed while that was an open case.
0: Hey, could it hypothetically be considered corruption for a police officer to take this information and hand it to a journalist?
3: I. Mm, those chaps, they took the old brief, which is really public property. I think.
1: Ready to pop the question?
4: Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince.
1: Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
3: There's no reason why technically I couldn't get that brief from somewhere, but the reality is it's a bit harder than it looks. So <laughs> it always is, you know. Yeah. Technically, you're allowed it, but... Yeah. Anyway, they pulled the one off the, off the shelf at the <laughs> homicide office, gave it to me, and I threw it through a car window at me. And, like, <laughs> I I, I you know. and it okay. hit me on the chest. It was like, that's Martin, And i straight up. <laughs> he, he plays for Richmond. That's <laughs> an AFL. And um, I photocopied it uh, instantly on the uh, thing where it did, you know, 193 pages. And, oh, yeah, uh, the stack. Whatever and, it called. No, 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 it wasn't that. No, it was a real <laughs> photocopy. All
0: oh, right, sorry. The Canon. Yeah, I'm imagining this is happening in 1971. Yeah. But so it's not illegal, but it would have been frowned upon.
3: I got no. So I copied it all, and then I had my own set, and I gave them back theirs, and they, I threw it back through the window of the car, <laughs> and it went back to the homestretch, and back on the shelf. Okay. Okay. So then I had this set. So I started reading it, and it's just. Open book, it goes. He's Mr. Dight, the pathologist. Two bullet wounds. Mm. I go, What another one, oh, Oh, he's this, he's that. He's Bill Kerr, the old copper. And I so I just sit there and ring all these people. So Dight's dead by this, but I ring his assistant, Mr. Dr. Sonnenberg. I remember these names, amazing. Can't remember what I had for breakfast. Yeah, <laughs> Sonnenberg. And Sonnenberg says, Yeah, well, was. It was a bit of a worry, you know. We we're never that happy with that. Anyway, mm. the coppers seem to think it was suicide. I've rung um, Kath Blake. Mm. Here's the thing: she acted. Now I've rung her out of the blue. She answers the phone at Mansfield, and you'd think she'd been waiting.
2: Yeah. She yeah. knew
3: that I was going to ring five minutes earlier. Yeah. It's as, mm. as, as if she'd been waiting all those years for me to ring. She said, "Yes, right. Well, I'll tell you. You can't yeah. see me because my daughter didn't commit suicide, and here's why: those reasons I outlined earlier." Mm. And she, and she had a lot of reasons, partly, I think, her Catholic, strong Catholic faith, which is against suicide, which Jennifer probably shared, that was one reason of many. There were a lot of reasons, and they were good reasons. And I then ring Bill Kirk, who's by this stage, this is the... The good no, copper. The good copper. The saggy-ass copper the saggy, that you mean in a nice The way. good copper.
4: Yeah. It must have gnawed at him for years. Yes. Imagine that feeling. Imagine thinking, that feeling. Just thinking,
3: this is dodgy. So Bill Kerr, interestingly, has gone as far away from Mansfield as he... He's left the job, mm. left the police force. He's gone to Hamilton, the other end of Victoria, about as far as you can get from Mansfield. And he's a parking officer down there for the council. Mm. And he lives out on a property with his wife and he lives a quiet life. He said, You come and you, I'll see you. He said, Where do you live? And at the time, I lived just out of Melbourne. And he said, I'm going up to Eildon next Thursday uh, to see somebody. I'll come and see you. So he came to my house with his wife, and we sat down, had the cup of tea, and he talked to me and talked to me and talked to me. And he, it was as if he had been waiting Mm. 12 years to unburden himself. Mm. He said, And he said a lot, but he, you can sum it up in one sentence. He said, Son, I've never worked out how you could shoot yourself twice in the head and in the hands with a bolt-action rifle. <sighs> it's just... And when we filmed this later for a documentary, he went and grabbed his own rifle and demonstrated it to the camera. He was red hot on it. And I think he was right. It yeah. was just highly unlikely. Um, uh, I found, you know, a, a, a man that was a pathologist and super-duper doctor who'd worked in Rhodesia in, as it was in the old days, Zimbabwe, Zimbabwe. uh, in Africa. And he would treated 200 gunshot wounds, victims and dead people and all the rest of it. He was an expert on gunshot wounds of the type we don't have in Australia because they don't see many of them. And um, he went through it all with me and said, look, I think those wounds, you know, the first one would have disabled her, even if she wasn't technically Mm. dead. I think it's highly unlikely. So, uh, by the time I'd worked my way through the brief and then skirted around and got bits and pieces, I really had the story. It so, was uh, largely in the brief. So, what
0: happened when this story landed?
3: Well, the first thing that happened when I started to make noises was the police force took out a writ, and, oh, uh, took out an injunction. They I'm sorry. Did an not. Injunction, they injuncted it. And that actually made me a little bit happy oh. after a while because I thought, well, that means no one can publish it. They injuncted the whole thing. So <laughs> that meant, and we injuncted it until a Sunday and I was working for a Sunday Because we paper. forget
0: that. So the, your journalist's ego is also terrified that someone else is going to get this story first. for living. It's They're a- going to get it out first.
3: Now, <laughs> the injunction ended up being a bit of a blessing and they said, we're, not, we're still investigating this. You're getting in our way. Uh, you are interfering, you could be warning people that it uh, that need to be investigated and it seemed that everywhere I'd, they went and they went there rapidly, I'd just been. They were, <laughs> they were busy basically doing what I was doing and playing catch-up because they had not been doing it. Yep. It had been at the bottom of the pile and had been left at the bottom of the pile and suddenly in a fortnight they were going to do it all because it was all going to be very smelly. And in the end, we had out two weeks or whatever and we published the story. And the story was very good. In the first edition of the paper. You know the one that's printed early? Yeah. It was very good in that paper. It was a big front page story. It was was. a beautiful story. Mm. But you know what happened that night, ladies and gentlemen? What? Some idiot at the AFL park at the football lit a toilet roll in the toilets with a cigarette lighter. Now this was a very short-lived. It wasn't even a fire. It was just a toilet roll on fire. But for some brain-dead football reporter, he thought they are going to burn the stadium down. (laughs) He thought it was, you know, the LA riots. He thought it was Paris burning. And the people back at the desk at the paper, um, one of them, they're very capable people and I'm very friendly with them, but if you work late at night on a newspaper, you are always vulnerable to the thought that there's a big story breaking that you're going to get and beat the opposition. And that night, for about 20 minutes, they thought, this is it. We've got AFL Park burning down. And they pulled the, my story off the front and pushed it to inside and ran this crap story that was out of date before the bloody thing, <laughs> hit the, the printer, before it was on the printing press, there was no fire. It was crap. And that pushed a real story inside. There's a lesson here. Never push a real story out of the way
0: okay. with a fake one. So that's what happened to
3: your front that's page. But happened. I was
0: actually asking so more about away. what happened to the case. <laughs> well, <laughs> but
3: that, 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 it, it is relevant <laughs> okay, because good. it shows why, because the second edition <laughs> is the one that everybody reads.
0: Really? Yeah. Hang on. What is, time does the first edition the come first out? The first edition
3: goes to the country. Right. And uh, next day, you know what I realized? Oh. I'm in the country. I'm living in the country. Right. And I'm driving to Bendigo mm. to see Mother's Day or whatever it was. So my mother's birthday. And I turned the radio on and the opening, the bulletin of the radio, it doesn't lead on the Tannock.
0: It's the no. bloody dungeon. As
3: soon as yeah. I No, 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 it's not the Dunyan No. But, but it's not the Tannock. And I said, I know what's happened in the city, in the second edition, the one that oh. was reading, this story's been bumped. Right. And I tweaked because my edition at home in the country mm, was, was all over the front. Mm. But I tweaked straight away because it wasn't leading the radio news. So they actually butchered a really big story and lost its momentum in some respects. Mm.
0: But I'm sure that the Tanner family was all over it. So, you yeah, know, what They got the first edition. I'm sure they, they did. At, um, and I'm
3: sure Manchester.
0: their lawyers did. And I'm sure what was the upshot of all of this?
3: The story really pushed and the subsequent stories, which I did, yeah pushed it and pushed it so that in the end the authorities and the police have to sort of get on board and have a shot at this. They quashed the old original inquest finding. They call a new inquest which started in 96 sometime and ran over 23 sitting days over about a year under the coroner Graham Johnson Mm. who was a very quiet and uh, intelligent, judicious man Mm who didn't indulge in the sort of um, um, chatty, funny stuff with the barristers at the bar table. He was uh, kept his own distance. And he happened to be, which is good, uh, for a magistrate or a judge or anybody or a coroner, he happened to be a, um, uh, a recreational shooter. He was a pistol shooter and went to target places. And knew shot his up. guns. And he knew his guns. And he knew what he was listening to and what he wasn't listening to, which is not always the case Mm. with the bench, Michelle, Mm. because sometimes these people, intelligent as they are, are really thick (laughs) and they do dumb shit. Yeah. Let me go through a few of those. (laughs) Judges can get it wrong. Coroners can get it wrong. Magistrates can get it wrong because they're only human. But Graham Johnson didn't and he knew what he was looking at and he made a very brave finding and a finding that others have seen fit to pick at since yeah. with increasing frequency, but that doesn't make them right. And he found that Jennifer Tanner had been shot to death by her brother-in-law, Dennis Tanner. With, serving, my with one hand. With one Sergeant Dennis Tanner, a serving policeman.
0: Is he? You never mentioned that.
3: Serving policeman.
0: Dennis Tanner's a serving policeman. Yes. He was. He was yes. at the time of her death. Back in
3: the day, he was in St Kilda, in South Melbourne, at Ah! Epicenter of. Uh, sorry, I thought you'd know that.
0: Nuh-uh. Most I the audience doesn't. They me? did not. No, we didn't. You did.
3: I'll go with me.
1: <laughs>
0: no, but it was great the way you dropped it. Then that was amazing. It blew my mind.
4: Wow. Yeah. So
3: there. Did now, they
4: ever give a reason though? Why would someone? want to kill Jennifer?
3: Well, my catch-all answer to such questions, and it's a fair question and one everybody wants to ask, it's the dinner party question, really, and Mm. you're entitled to ask it, and that is murders or violent killings are manslaughters, whatever, homicides are rarely totally logical uh, crimes. They are often very stupid crimes. It is not that stupid for me to want to rob the Commonwealth Bank of 20 million, because if I get away with it, I've got 20 million. Mm, mm. But it is not that smart for me to go home, argue with my better half about burning the fish and kick it to death, which does happen in some circles. (laughs) And I know, you know, every homicide copper will tell you Mm. that that's what most homicides are Mm. it's an argument over something. And it can be over money, it can be over the yeah. fish, it can be over, God knows, you know, running the car into a tree, whatever. Most m- murders and homicides are dumb crimes. Mm-hmm. And I believe that in this instance, we know for a fact that Laurie Tanner had been married before. Okay. And Laurie Tanner had been married to a woman called Suzanne who was a school teacher that he'd met at Mansfield. And she'd gone to live with him on the old Tanner farm in the same farmhouse and guess what? She wasn't really up for it. And after a while, she said, Laurie, I'm going my own suite. Well, I think I'll go back to Fitzroy. That's an yeah. inner suburban, suburb of Melbourne. <laughs> Just, you, we with it? That yeah, yes, yeah, 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 yes, thank yeah. you. Okay. Um, and, uh, and I will have, ex- and this is in the 70s, so scale the money to, you know, a time when I earned $3,000 a year, I think Mrs. Laurie Tanner wanted 20, So it was a proper amount of money. And I understand that, and I spoke to Suzanne about this, I understand that the Tanner family scrimped and saved and borrowed and put together the sum to pay her out so they could keep the old family farm because Mm. people do get very attached to family farms. Mm. It's not just, you know, another property. Mm. It's not a block of flats. It's the family farm and it's Mm -hmm. your granddad. You know, cleared it, and that mm. means something to you. So, I reckon because Laurie wasn't the sort of guy that whose wives would not want to leave him, probably um, that Dennis he allegedly said to a hotel broker, he allegedly said these words: um, the "We paid out the first slut, but God. I made, I made sure." the second slut didn't have to get paid oh or worse gosh. to that effect. Every which way, I know there's a lot of things we haven't said here, but every which way you look at it, it adds up to a homicide. Mm-hmm. And you will hear people po- uh, posit alternative theories. And, in fact, Dennis Tanner and a complete idiot uh, called Ron Irwin, who was we
4: speaking about this before, who's, weren't who's we? Who's a, who was a,
3: always a dill. He's now a dead dill. Um, <laughs> he wrote this lick pathetic, rubbishy book 16 or 17 years after the event with Dennis Tanner, which affects all those years afterwards, which was called Blackened Tanner. Good play on words, hey? And, um, the
4: Dennis Tanner story, was, I believe. The strapline was. The strapline.
3: <laughs> mm. And essentially that was a sort of a lame lawyer's defence case. So in other words, it picked up all sorts of bits and pieces of strange exotica and uh, allegations and... Nonsense and made up stuff and half true things, a farrago of facts and fiction and downright lies
4: like an alibi, and, alleged uh, uh, alibi. Yeah.
3: It's 17 years Dennis later. Dennis wasn't, yeah. Oh, near I there. was, I was booking was in Melbourne uh, or an English tourist who was driving a combi van. <laughs> I remember now he had parked <laughs> near the boulevard in St Kilda. It's just come back to me mm. two decades later. Yeah. That was it. Yeah, it was good. It was really good.
0: Is he still alive, by the way, Dennis, with one end? Oh,
3: yeah. Oh, yeah.
0: Because now I'm just remembering... He's he's
3: taking snapshots of us now and he could run you off the road.
0: (laughs) Josh! Don't, because I remember now...
3: (laughs) Maybe you can cut that bit out.
0: (laughs) At the start of this conversation, you said, people always ask me what are the scariest cases I've written about and this is one of them. It's one of them. Are you scared of Dennis with one end?
3: I don't know that we need to go down that path. But I'll tell you wow. a story. I'll yep. tell you a story. When I was writing this, I'll p-
0: cut this out if you're scared of him. There's no, no shame in that. No,
3: shame. A, well, if you met him,
0: yeah, no, I'm, so I'm honest. There's no shame um, in that. He sounds like a scary I'm dude. A,
3: yes, I understand him, I'll cut him out, because yeah. I came from the bush, from yep. a farm, from similar circumstances. Yep. So I get him totally. Yep. I understand him in ways that perhaps that others don't. And I understand, you know, he's grown up shooting stuff and all that. A man of action. Clearly, when I was writing this story, we lived partly in a, uh, a small house in a quiet suburb of Melbourne, and a lot of the work was done there. And I used to pull the blinds because I was at the time. I thought there's great pressure on this. They know I'm doing this, and there was a time where I thought it was vulnerable, or I, I was vulnerable. And I used to pull the blinds. And I said the kids, "You know, my wife, don't answer the door." at night in case of blah blah and one night I'd been to a function rather like this, where I was speaking at something, and I drove home late and I parked in the street outside our house our then house and which we no longer have and I walked inside as usual but it's probably midnight and go inside, clean my teeth you know three minute shower, jump into bed, right so it's very quick, flick the light out, straight away I hear this crash outside, big crash, noise, smashing noise. I go, shit, that's what I said. And I ran out because <laughs> I've got little kids, I wasn't going to say the other Yeah. One. So you might say the other I word.
0: I would, for you sure. You would, I know, because <laughs> you're,
3: you're different. There I'm you a different generation. So I go outside mm. and I've got a torch and I go to my my then lovely newish Land Rover, and uh, of which I was very fond, mm. and it's, Com- windscreen's completely <laughs> caved in. Oh, no. And I go, ooh, and I look at, at inside the Land Rover through the broken glass, and there on the passenger seat are not one but two roof tiles. Now, these were the ridge tiles. They're the ones on top of the roof. And there's mm. two of them, and they're big, heavy things, and they're shiny and brand new. And I thought, that's funny. Um, I reckon some guys coming from the Harp Hotel up in Kew, some tradie, he's pissed, and he's come around the corner, and he's he's off down the quiet streets to stay off the main road. Maybe he's come around the corner a bit quick, and these have fallen off the load mm. and hit my car, which was sort of faintly ridiculous because they'd gone straight through the windsport mm-hmm. <laughs> But I'm hoping, I'm looking for a, mm. I'm looking for the <laughs> looking the ahead. normal excuse. Yeah. So then I think, no kids, kids, bad kids, bad kids. But it was a sort of a week night. It wasn't Saturday night, and there were no. You know, it just didn't gel. Anyway, I took the tiles, which is probably a good thing. And I took them inside and I put them down. And I wasn't that stressed about this at that stage. And I went to bed and I got up next morning and then I had a good look at them. And I held them up in the light and they're brand new and they're shiny because they've been through the machine and they've got the glaze on them. And stamped on them is the date and the time when they're made exact time, 1107 or whatever. And I ring Monia, because they'd made them, and I said, Mr Monia, blah, 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 explain myself, I need to know if you can identify these tiles and where they come from, which batch they went out to. And they said, yeah, and they rang me back. And they said, they come from number 36 Birdwood Avenue, Baldwin. Mm. Now, this was interesting because I drove immediately to that address. This was uh, a kilometre and a half from my house. Uh, too far to walk if you're going to carry. You'd walk your Labrador there, but you wouldn't walk that distance carrying these two roof tiles because they're very heavy. And I saw on the footpath a whole pack of tiles dumped by the truck, as they do, with a crane, and there'd been a kitchen fire at this house and they were redoing the roof. And somebody has been around there. They've pinched these two tiles and then they've driven them. Obviously, this is deduction driven them to my house. And then they've waited for me to come home and park my car. And I thought, oh, oh, this is not good. This is a message. We know where you live. We know what car you drive. And we know when you get home.
4: What did Mrs Rule think of this? She I'd
3: wasn't delighted. out. <laughs> We're still married. Oh, my God. She's still married. But there's a whole other yeah, story she could tell. She was mm-hmm. sitting in a doctor's waiting room once and then came, guess who? <laughs> two Tanner brothers and she was sure they recognised them. and then later that night the power went off at home when I wasn't home she thought somebody had flicked the um the switch box which is what bad people do when they're going to do the run through of your house Mm. they turn off the power Mm. at the main and then they run through your house (laughs) (laughs) oh If it happens, it's only a fluke. <laughs> and if, indeed, in that case, it was. The whole street was out and it wasn't anything bad. But it happened that very night that she'd got a bit of a fight. So there you go. So that was something that happened. And I believe that the people that did that, there were two of them, I think a driver and a tiled stealer. Thrower. Yeah. Thrower. And I believe that it was someone closely connected to the case I was, had just written about.
4: So what happened, so Dennis Tanner is named in this inquest, which is not great for him, obviously. No. But he's he, never charged. No. So.
3: An inquest is, as um, a lot of people here will probably suspect, an inquest into a death or a fire is an inquisitorial, hence the name, process whereby the the coroner has the power to ask people questions on pain of um, and say you've got to answer me unless you put your hand up and say mm. um I could be um criminally Incr- uh, incriminating, myself. incriminating myself is the phrase yeah. or
0: unless they can't find you that's what I've learned as well yeah. I mean yeah. if they can't find, they can't
3: find you they can't find yeah. you and it has to be in a coronial inquest the standard of proof is merely uh, on the balance of probability that is 51 percent whereas in a in a trial for murder or any other criminal case, it has to be beyond reasonable doubt, mm. which, of course, is, you know, yeah. nine out of ten, whatever. So that's the difference and that's why no one was ever charged because in the end um, there was, they were never going to get a conviction.
0: But also the coroner just makes recommendations, right? Does. So really then it's up to the government true. or whoever to, the, to take them up or not true. and they usually don't.
3: They, true, but in this case the coroner knew as well as anyone else. That it wasn't going to fly
0: yeah but it's still very powerful to uh, but it's a powerful. but a he name. did what he could yeah he did mm. what he could nicole oakes nicole here sing out if you are is that Hi, you my love no, that's, that's Hi, you nicole. hello thank you so much it's Beautiful. one of these ladies pointing at each other yeah. Yeah. it's hard to know hard to see. um what's your favorite international true crime case andrew
3: well um internationally of course like most of you we've all heard of your lord lucan disappearing We've In more recent years, a, a thing that obsesses a lot of people, I think, is Maddie McCann. Yes. Oh, my
2: God, I And know. I think,
3: you know, naturally you can't ignore that. Um, but I've also been uh, intrigued by the brilliant writing about true crime cases and probably the thing that's been the biggest influence on my career and the way I write stories and the sort of stories I write was In Cold Blood by Truman Capote. Uh, and I think that... Um, that, it, written in the 60s, was the first of that sort of book and it it was brilliant and beautifully written um, and it inspired, I believe, an English book called Beyond Belief. I, I believe it inspired it, which was almost a contemporary and it's about the Moores murders, Myra Hendley and Ian Brady and that is also a brilliant book, a very different book, mm-hmm. written by a Welsh playwright called Emlyn Williams and that I found very inspiring. Those two books... I found them riveting. I read them when I was very young and I've never forgotten them and I've reread them and they've stuck with me. Christy, Christy
0: Grant. Grant, at any stage in your career were you asked to look into the cold case of Mandy Lee Yodgie in the 1980s? I'm,
3: uh, I'm sad to say, Christy, uh, for some reason I never actually worked on that case to any great extent, but I do know a little bit about it. Um, Mandy Lee Yodgie was a, a young woman. Uh, she disappeared in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne. Two boys found her body one lunchtime lying on an an embankment covered in scrub up just off the mountain highway in the Dandenongs in the hills. That was in 1984. The body had been there for several weeks at that time. A post-mortem found no cause of death, but police believe she might have been poisoned. Obviously no broken neck, no bullet wound, none of that obvious trauma, blunt trauma, and they could never really work it out. That was obviously 30 plus years ago, but the uncertainty sort of lingers on and I know that Mandy's sister, Marnie Dean, has spoken over the years. Marnie was a child then, 10, I think. She's now, you know, a middle-aged woman who's still haunted by the disappearance of her big sister. And it is one of those sort of little-known cold cases that are very haunting, particularly for those that had anything to do with the girl who vanished.
4: We yeah. could do a podcast
0: episode on that one. I maybe. think you could. Really mm. good idea, actually. Lily Sabo. Is Lily here? Hi, Lil. Hi, Lily. Thank you so hi, much hi, for Lily. coming. Why do so many of us love a good true crime story, Andrew?
3: I think the as humans we're all intrigued by life and death. Mm. And uh, from the earliest age it gets us in and that leads us to be interested in crime and punishment, in right and wrong, in all, all those Things And when you think about it, all the great drama that we've, you know, known through history and also contemporary, Shakespeare, what is it? It's life and death. Mm -hmm. It's mostly crime stories of one sort or another. And so so is opera, so is ballet, so is nearly everything to some extent is a version of a crime story.
0: Well, this takes me to the next question, actually. This is, I've I've realised recently... One of my favourite elements of true crime stories, Shona's question, Shona here, it's Hey Hey, Shona, Shona. Um, Shona's question is what was the single best, I hope everyone doesn't mind me shortening their names, it's just, (laughs) sorry, it's just the way I live, Shona says what was the single best piece of evidence that was key to solving a crime that you can remember and I just, when I read and hear about investigations I'm always so dazzled by investigators' minds and the way they figure this out
3: probably everyone here including you two have got better examples than this but i'll do this one mm. close to home yeah the first book i ever wrote was called cuckoo and it's about what was a massively big deal case when i was a child when i was a little boy of about nine or ten in the 1960s there were two big crimes in a matter of weeks one was the beaumont children mm. and the next one in victoria was the disappearance of two teenagers from Shepparton that they were called Abina Medill and Gary Haywood. She was 16, he was 18. They went missing from a a rock dance in Shepparton uh, on the same week that decimal currency was brought in. Mm. And they they vanished off the face of the earth. It was a massive case because, you know, it was sex and drugs and rock and roll. Well, no drugs, probably. Um, But uh, their bodies weren't found for a couple of weeks maybe 16 days, something like that. And uh, in that time, decimal currency had arrived, but Australia had sort of lost its innocence. And that case was intriguing to me as a child because it was front-page news, it was really scary, it was big deal, it was creepy. It was set in a country and yet it intrigued city people. Um, it was sort of the end of an era in Australia. And 20, nearly 19 years later, that case was solved because a brilliant fingerprint guy matched up a fingerprint that had come to his um, notice routinely because a man, a dirty, you know, ordinary sex offender, had been seen exposing himself in Albury, New South Wales, just over the river in Albury, New South Wales, not in Wodonga. And in New South Wales, the fingerprint laws in 1985 were that if you got arrested for anything, they fingerprinted you. So the lady in the shop sees this guy exposing himself. She rings the local coppers. They come down, they grab this bloke, they take him to the cop shop and they get his hands and they put them on the ink and they put them on the paper and they send the, the thing to Central Fingerprint Bureau and eventually it gets disseminated over some days and weeks to everywhere and a genius young fingerprint bloke in Melbourne called Andrew Wall um, who wasn't even in Australia back when the Medill Haywood thing happened in 66 mm-hmm. he was a kid in England he says hang on that print reminds me of one of these 10 most wanted prints we got here and he managed to recognise that bit of a wow. hand wow. that had been found on Gary Haywood's fj holden in 1966 Ooh. he managed to he, he remembered it because ah. he's got a mind like a steel trap yeah. and he made that match and i thought that was a great piece of detection and mm-hmm. it's close to home for me because it was sort of the sort of the basis of my first book which is um still with us uh, i Very have a version form. of it out in the foyer
0: do you <laughs> Good. Unreal, because I've tried to buy that. I couldn't it, find a copy anywhere, well, so I'll buy it tonight.
3: It's inside an omnibus.
0: Ah, which
3: great. Which is called something else.
0: Adele Gleisner. Or, yeah, is it Adele Gleisner? Is that how I say it? Is Adele here?
3: Can you change it to Deli?
0: Delhi, Delhi, Del. <laughs> e. There you are. Edie.
3: How do I... Protect okay. family from vicarious trauma. Is yes,
0: how do you do that? And protect yourself and family from vicarious trauma. Do you ever go home freaked out or have you in your career gone home a bit sort of grumpy and freaked out?
3: Grumpy often.
0: Grumpy. Um, Someone spills the milk and you go off tap and they go, Dad, what is with Dad?
3: I do remember yelling so loudly at one of my then youngish children, perhaps teenagers, so loudly that the neighbours heard me. Because they'd opened the door to a stranger. Ah. And um, there were two things here. One is, you know, bad guys. And the other one was getting served with someone just by <laughs> process service who wanted me to go to court and be sued. Yep. And so I had my kids all lined up saying, no. I've <laughs> <laughs> never heard of him. He's it. not here. Yeah. He's interstate. So, and they said, but. <laughs> Anyway, but well, we just saw him walk outside. No, no, that was my brother. He's an old-looking brother. Anyway, um, I remember yelling at one of my kids because I was stressed out yeah. by the possibility that it was someone I didn't want, we didn't want to see no. and I didn't want them opening the door and letting somebody, some clown in. So the way to avoid that, um, I didn't really discuss a lot, lot of this stuff with my family. I didn't really take my work home and talk to them about it much, particularly kids.
4: What about Mrs Rule? Would you talk to her?
3: Um, inevitably with the big story like oh, that, yep. yes.
0: Molly Which Nina. Mole. Are you here, Mole? Yep, up there. Uh, has there been any one crime uh, or story that's really affected you that you haven't been able to stop thinking about?
3: I'm going to share this with you, and Emily's very big on this one. It's the Margaret Tapp case, mm. Margaret and Shauna Tap. Tapp. Yep. Uh, Margaret was a... You know, mother in her late 30s, she had a 10 year old daughter called Shauna. Mm-hmm. They, their bodies were found, uh, they'd been murdered uh, back in um, the early 80, 84, the year of the Los Angeles Olympics, wasn't it? It was yep. during the Olympics. Yep. And this was at a, uh, their re- relatively humble house in a street in Ferntree Gully.
0: I can still picture myself driving to the airport one day listening to your podcast about this, and there was a moment when I gasped out loud well, at a detail that you mentioned and I went,
2: ah!
3: like that.
0: It was amazing. It's such Well, a...
3: It's, a, it's a terrible case because you've got a mother and a daughter mm. who there's no killer ever been found. Mm. They've never looked like finding anyone. I think it fell through the cracks with the police for various reasons. One of them being that one of the police that went to the job um, used to carry a Big M carton with a straw in it, but it wasn't milk in the carton. Mm-hmm. This would be mm-hmm. for breakfast. Right. And that doesn't help. Um, there was also another major murder mystery out mm. that way, which yep. you're familiar with.
4: Yeah, Nanette Ellis. Uh, Nanette
3: Ellis, who used to work at Leader News. Practice. She did.
4: She was a and newspaper was a, manager And there. for
3: various reasons, possibly one of them is that she was a very beautiful woman. She was which stunning. Which leads to, it sort of warps things for some, the bad, wrong reasons. But that case sort of took the shine off the tap one somehow mm-hmm. and the tap one never really got past first base. Um, one of the, and it's not really the police's fault, uh, normally, those things they call for—you know—they have big publicity drives, they have uh, press conferences. But I believe that Margaret Tapp's own family were probably conservative, deeply shocked, probably religious people who didn't, uh, had never agreed with Margaret's lifestyle, which was fairly racy, and didn't want to wear all her dirty linen in public, and probably didn't help the police much by projecting. The way that the Ellis yeah. Ellis family did, and I think that sort of killed it stone dead. I also think that the only candidate I've come across for it, who's good for it maybe, was a medical person who was sort of above suspicion. Mm-hmm. And I think that the best candidate for it, according to his own children, is a person who was a doctor. Mm-hmm who wore volley sand shoes
4: yes the volley sand shoes because the
3: only clue that they could never work out was why were there volley sand shoe prints in this house they couldn't link them to anybody who knew her
4: i always remember that from your big feature you did on the anniversary many years ago the
3: son of a doctor Mm. contacted me indirectly and uh, i spoke to him and his friends and it does the finger of suspicion does point at a certain doctor. uh, With whom Margaret Tapp, Uh, Margaret Tapp was a nurse and she was enormously charismatic and um, attractive and interesting and doctors particularly really liked her Mm. and she'd had affairs with seven of them. Um, And this made it tricky for the police because, you know, it's it's a hydra-headed monster Mm. and she knew a lot of people and a lot of people knew her and they just didn't know which which thread to follow.
0: You can read Andrew Rule's columns in The Herald Sun and The Herald Sun online. And don't miss his podcast, Life and Crimes with Andrew Rule. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week.